You're listening to Captured in Celluloid. I'm Adam McGee. And I'm Andrew Snyder. And on this episode, we are going to talk about, I don't know, Andrew, uh, viruses, celebrity meat, brain-controlling yeah. assassins. Is that, does that sum it up? You know, just similar to what we discussed last week. I think this falls along the same lines of uh, the kind of cinema we always talk about. I mean, we always get into celebrity meat, right? At least once an episode. Our rule, as it has come to to be, not by any sort of planning, seems to be that we take a hard turn every week. No two weeks are going to be remotely alike. We go in just extremes, really. Veer off extremes by the direction from week to week, and that's our show. So on this occasion, we will talk about the films of Brandon Cronenberg, those being Antiviral and his recently released Possessor. And that was really going to be the kind of the core and the bulk of what we talked about, really the entirety of what we talked about. Uh, it will still be the majority of it, but it would seem weird, and I think it's kind of impossible for us to ignore the elephant in the theater, Andrew which is the news that broke earlier today that Warner Brothers is sending its entire slate to HBO Max in the US for 2021. So that doesn't just mean, oh, we're we're kind of going a little bit further than the Christmas Day release of Wonder Woman. That means that something like The Matrix 4, which I think is currently slated for December 21st, 2021, feels like a long time away. Who knows if next year will feel as long as this year uh, but that is slated to go to hbo max now it will go to hbo max along with going to theaters this is day and date but i think it's safe to say we know how most people will see it there will certainly be plenty of good reason for that in the early part of the year by the end of the year who knows but this is kind of earth-shattering news it's not out of the blue, by any means, I already mentioned Wonder Woman is going to drop on HBO Max on Christmas Day. Um, Disney are releasing the new Pixar film Soul on Disney Plus worldwide on that same day. So big, big movies and some of the really some of the biggest movies that have taken this journey in terms of blockbusters were coming straight to VOD and straight to streaming in the very near future. But to just completely here's our whole slate for next year we're kind of punting on theatrical i mean we'll get into the details there's some gray area in that they are gonna get theatrical runs they will go back to theaters after a month they'll be exclusively in theaters for a while i we could unpack the logic um or lack thereof in this decision but it's a pretty drastic move that I mean, it's one thing Warner Brothers doing it, but now it also reminds me seeing how everyone else reacts. Is this just going to be the thing? It certainly helps that Warner have their own streaming service in HBO Max, and it has recently launched. And if you want to, you know, give that a boost, give it some juice, this is definitely a good way to do it, to be like, oh, hey, this is where you can find Wonder Woman and Suicide Squad and Dune and The Matrix 4 and, you know, on and on and on. But big, big news all the same. What are your initial thoughts on hearing this news? Honestly, I really don't like it, which is probably something I wouldn't have necessarily felt as passionate about before the pandemic. I get it. I understand why it's happening. It makes sense. 
somewhat from a business perspective. Now the scale in which they're unveiling their plans, I, I don't necessarily agree with. I think it's really um, presumptuous to plan out the entire year when we've had positive momentum with with vaccines and it looks like there's light at the end of the tunnel. But from a larger standpoint, I, I guess I get it. But I think one of the things that the pandemic has done for me, Adam, a recurring bit when we talk about movies is my... Uh, my hesitancy or not hesitancy, just my ability to push things off and not go and see as many movies as I should and then catch right back up all at once. And what the pandemic has done is this really made me miss the movie going experience. I mean, as I was growing up before the the streaming era, there was a real like need to see movies in theaters because that was the only way you were going to get to do it, do it for a while. And if you wanted to be up to date on the conversation and uh, stay current, you had to go physically sit in the theater. And there's there's something that I still find really appealing about, you know, waiting in line to buy your ticket, then I'm going to go get my popcorn and my soda, and then I, I'm getting settled in my seat. Oh, I need to go to the bathroom first. Oh, I forgot napkins. All right, now I'm in my seat, and I'm experiencing this movie the way the director wanted it to be experienced on a big screen in a theatrical setting. And it's it's really more than just going through a Netflix queue and clicking on a screen. So I'm I'm unhappy that that experience is going to be possibly diluted even more than it already has been. Yeah, it's going to be dilute, diluted in a major way and really to a point where I just, I don't know how it will come back. I don't know how it can. That's my big reaction to it. It's not like we, we talked about this a month, six weeks ago, we talked about the kind of, I guess what was coming down the road. We talked about getting to this kind of conversation. And I likely made that the point then. I'll make it again. Like, it's not, it's not the death of movies completely because much smaller cinemas have already had to adjust to COVID independent cinemas in a different way. And whether it's pivoting to online and VOD releases that, kind of run directly through them this has been something i know that multiple notable kind of smaller chains and then independent cinemas throughout the u.s have done there's certainly plenty of examples of it here in ireland and i know in the uk likewise so that's one part of it and i think those kind of cinemas will find a way and when everything is safe and they reopen the kind of movies they show are still going to attract the audience and that will be your cinema it will be you know people who really live and die movies and movies in i guess their most varied forms sometimes their lowest budget form or maybe it's you know mixture of foreign language whatever you get the general kind of art house picture i'm painting there what happens to blockbusters though is kind of fascinating because the blockbuster business has been booming <laughs> like Look at what the MCU has done just before all this came to hit. Look at what you could just churn out those movies. Not my favorite movies to their credit, though. I don't think they ever quite got to the churn phase in terms of quality, in terms of what they were doing. The greater kind of, I guess, narrative true line was put together with thought and was carried over in a way that I think got them a lot of well-deserved credit. But with the kind of money those films were bringing in, you know, you could just churn and print money. And that was completely atypical of what theatrical release was for most movies. 
And yet it was almost never more profitable to be a big tentpole blockbuster movie. This is a bit like kind of cutting your nose off to spite your face. Because what when you give people Wonder Woman at home, will they want to go and see the next one in a theater? Will they accept 2022 comes along and you're like, okay, you've got to go back. Who knows? Maybe prices are up in theaters. Theaters will be literally on their knees, desperate, desperate to hang on by that point if they have indeed hung on, bigger chains in particular. And then you've got your price of food, concessions, all of that stuff. You know, it's going to make it such a jarring and jolting experience as if it wasn't already, as people get so used to the Netflix experience and with Netflix becoming this kind of central, central piece of. The culture, and I think one of the things that is interesting, like you alluded to, the communal experience of the movie going experience, and it's it's something we talk about a lot. It's something everyone who loves going to the cinema discusses. There's another kind of communal experience that isn't even a necessarily a physical in person thing, and that's the communal conversation after the fact. And my reaction to this plan, because it's worth pointing out, I mean, this plan is that they're going to HBO Max, a streaming service that is available in the US. Is it available in Canada? I'm not entirely sure. What I can say is it's not available elsewhere in the world. And I know Warner's plan, for example, with Wonder Woman has been, oh, we're doing theatrical releases elsewhere in the world. And it's going straight to HBO Max in the US. Now, there's two sides to that coin. One is that's reflective of the place America is at in terms of the pandemic. And yet it's also kind of just ignoring the fact that, sure, other countries maybe have it more under control. There is still a global pandemic. And there are lots of people who won't or maybe unable to go and sit in a theater. And the appetite to do so is is reduced pretty greatly. Like, I mean, theaters have just reopened here right now. I'm I'm not going. <laughs> like, it's it's that simple. I'm not going. It's not worth it. It doesn't make sense. Like, it's another thing, and I, I may well look to support the places I do usually go. Uh, whether that's true, their own kind of home streaming services, or whether it's true any kind of memberships, donations, all those kind of things that I think theaters around the world have called out for in this kind of very strange time. But there's a part of this conversation that in the early instant reaction discourse has just been lost. And I find it kind of hilarious because it's something that is very often relevant to me. It's often relevant to us because when we, in the past and even on the previous iteration of our podcast, when we'd come to talk about movies, we always have the release date issue, particularly with awards movies. Something could be out in, August in the US and I could be waiting for it till February and in a normal year I want to see it on a big screen and I'll wait and that is very very annoying it's very annoying because guess what this isn't like the 1930s word travels around there's a communal kind of online film experience that if you're into movies you Follow people on Twitter or on Facebook or Instagram or Letterboxd or wherever it is that they're talking about these movies. You may listen to podcasts like I do where these movies are getting discussed. And, 
you're then just going to be thought, well, actually, it's just dropping here day and date safe at home in this place, and it's not going to do that elsewhere. That, to me, is a very, very strange thing. And the colossal oversight in that is it's just going to lead to rampant piracy. So not only are they undercutting themselves potentially in terms of the relationship that the consumer has with the theater, so just your everyday casual movie viewer, the kind of movie viewer who maybe will only go for a big blockbuster, for a Marvel movie or a DC movie or Star Wars or a big Disney picture, whatever it might be, you might just kind of be losing them to begin with. Then you're already operating at very drastically reduced options in terms of domestic box office in the US. And then there's this idea of, oh, well, you know, global box office has been okay. Um, in some countries, I believe in South Korea and in China, has actually been quite good and quite robust. Very different attitudes to uh, mask wearing in those countries, I will say, compared to most of the Western world. But I think they're ignoring a big reality is that they're just going to lose their international box office. Because guess what? I mean, if... If I'm going to have to wait three months more for whatever Warner Brothers film, and then I'm still going to have to go to a theater in the middle of a pandemic to see it, you're really pushing someone, someone like me, who cares deeply about movies, who spends, like, a lot of money a year on going to theaters. In a normal year, a lot of money. Hundreds and hundreds on memberships. Who knows what on tickets beyond that. You're pushing someone like me towards piracy. Because what are what is this? How does this serve me? How does this serve? I'm not getting the experience I want in the first place. And then you're also still trying to push something that isn't necessarily safe. I That's one of the things I've kind of been trying to work my head around is you've got the, the main kind of frontline issue that everyone can see, which is, my God, these are really notable movies. They're going straight to VOD. What happens next? How does it bounce back from that? You know, how do people readjust? Is this taking away what I think most people assumed, and I think is probably accurate, a potential boom for theatrical box office revenue that there could have been post-vaccine? Like, people will want to go out. Um, there's a lot of movies that have just been kind of piling up in a backlog. You could have waited just a little bit longer, put them in theaters, and away you go. If you're not going to do that, it gets more complicated. Now, there's greater complications behind the scenes of that. I mean, I don't see how they make their money back on this. I really don't. Like, they can get a lot, a lot of HBO Max subscriptions. That is not a global platform. You're not going to you're not gonna make up for it. Maybe in the long run, it could just be worth it at a launch point to go and do this. But it's, you know, they're shattering the theatrical window. I don't know if that can be replaced. I don't know if a new window can just be put up a year from now that people will accept, particularly the kind of people you're trying to bait in to sign up for HBO Max. Yeah, and that's that's the thing for me about the situation over here. Obviously, uh, internationally, it is truly a slap in the face <laughs> to people. Uh, you're doing one thing with the American audience and, and packaging up uh, these releases in a fairly easy-to-access platform with a subscription, and 
uh, internationally, they're saying, well, you know what? You can go out in public. We don't really care about you. Also, it'll be out in streaming three months from now. For, forget Sorry the slap it. in the face, though, right? Forget that part of it. Like, I don't care about that part of it. I don't expect any studio exec to really give too much consideration to that. It's a terrible business decision. It's a terrible, terrible business decision. You're now forcing the people who are most passionate about seeing your movies, the kind of people who would go to a theater on opening day in a normal situation, you're going to say to them, oh, uh, well, if you want to see it, you've got to go to a theater. Like, I know where I live, and where I live currently has, like, the lowest instance rate of COVID in Europe. Theaters have just reopened. I wouldn't be betting a lot of money on them being open for very long. I wouldn't be betting a lot of money on the other side of Christmas into the new year um, that theaters wouldn't be closed again. And that's a, that's a concern in countries all over the world. Like, that's just the reality of it. These things are very much in flux. So if you're coming up with this kind of plan, like, I, I'm not suggesting people at Warner Brothers don't know the, the scale of the piracy problem. But putting something on a streaming service is just putting it out there in the world. It's putting it out there in the world for everyone. And if you then don't have the service available to everyone to pay and obtain it legally, you've got yourself a big problem. Maybe they pivot. Maybe they have to, depending on how the situation evolves. But I think it's a really, really reckless and short-sighted move that just could damage them on so many fronts. And it's one also that it kind of sets a precedent that then, like, for example, if you're Sony, do you dig your heels in? Do you, do you follow suit? If you're Universal, Universal have No Time to Die. They've delayed it twice. Like, No Time to Die should have been out nine months ago? That movie's on the shelf for a long time. Daniel Craig is desperate to no longer be James Bond. Eventually, you've got to figure something out. Like, does that get this release? Does it get day and date? If it's got day and date, in that case, you absolutely have to go worldwide because you can't be like, oh, here it is on this service. In that case, do you do a deal? There were rumors that Apple had spoken to them, that Netflix had spoken to them. It was really Apple who were pushing for it. But, like, financially, to run the numbers on it, like, the kind of money that Universal would be looking for for a Bond movie for it to make financial sense for them to sell it and not put it in theaters is like 400, 500 million. And that's selling low. Like, all of this is very, look, there are precedent times, it's very difficult, but I don't quite get how this is expected to work out. And, it, it, you know, Warner Brothers, HBO, HBO Max, these are AT&T companies. Uh, is it in their interests? You know, a company that, sells cell phone coverage and I guess internet, a technology company to be like let's make streaming the thing let's make this thing something that you know can fuel the rest of our business the thing yeah I think it is that might be what's happening, that might be what's happening and cinema is just the bundle you know next time you go buy your new phone you'll get your free 12 months to HBO Max and you'll get all of these movies that are just being dumped there that's not a sustainable model. That's not sustainable for movies. And it's amazingly the big budget movies that will suffer from here. Now, there'll be a lot of people 
who will just kind of shrug their shoulders at that and be kind of like, well, is that the worst thing? I don't know. What it, what it would mean is that movies move completely out of the center of culture. If you don't have these big budget movies, regardless of what anyone's thought is of, like, James Gunn's Suicide Squad, Matrix 4, no matter what you think of those movies, they're a big deal. And when films like that come out, that's what brings film to the forefront and lets people talk about it. Let's the whole... The whole show keep on rolling, gets everyone paid, brings the money in. It all starts to look very, very different in a hurry. So, I mean, it's going to be very interesting to see how this plays out, how everyone adjusts, how theaters react. Like, there were negotiations that theaters were getting a cut of the Wonder Woman money. At the moment, it seems like they're not going to do it after the 2021 releases, Warner. So, if that's the case, theaters are not going to react well. Also, I mean... I alluded to it earlier, right? So these films go to HBO Max for 31 days. Then they go back to an exclusive theater window before they go to a traditional VOD, rent, purchase, Amazon, iTunes, whatever. Why? How does that work? <laughs> How does that work? Like, I, I don't get it. What percentage of people who watched at home are then going to be like, I'm going to go and watch again on the big screen. For some of the comic book movies, sure, you may get some real hardcore fans, but the reality of this is making people see these films at home for the first time increases the possibility that, you know, the effects, the sound, the scale isn't there. So that takes away from the movie experience. They have the option to look at their phone, to go up and get a snack to basically do whatever they want, bar watch the movie. I don't know if this particular plan is one that's going to fuel the online experience or the at-home experience to the point where then people are going to be like, that was so good when I was checking my phone and when the sound was rattling through my tinny TV speakers that now I'm going to go and see it again in the theater. It None of it really adds up to me. Yeah, I mean, a lot of consumer behavior is based on how you deliver things to us and you be careful what you wish for in, in retraining people how to experience movies and yeah still a lot to be seen but the the whiplash effect of the the release schedule as you mentioned is is kind of mind-boggling and obviously i would assume these people are smarter than i am but um it's just a very very weird situation that uh i, I still don't love yeah not great not great i mean i think the bulk of the movies that I probably go and love and enjoy from year to year, they'll be fine. They'll be fine. They'll be playing in theaters. Uh, just like who will be going to the theaters? Will it be the kind of thing like who will be listening to a podcast like this? I mean, this is the kind of existential question facing movies is, you know, does it just become this incredibly niche thing? For so long, it has been the center of culture. Does it become niche? It's, been moving in that direction and certainly i don't think this is going to do a whole lot to help it like there's an argument for access that's always been part of the thing with netflix look at the cost people who can't afford to go to a theater who don't live near a theater who can't get there um or who live in a city say in the netflix case when they go to their awards releases and you get some of their more prestige films a lot of people for example maybe it's been overstated in this case because 
I don't know if everyone tunes into Roma, but sure, there's a case that you could live in places in the world and cities that your theater, your local theater is not necessarily going to be showing Roma. Well, guess what? It's there. It's on Netflix in your home. Great. That doesn't work, though, for the blockbuster. Without getting too much into, you know, what is the actual cultural value of a lot of these movies? Now, it's it's not entirely, it's not like Warner only make blockbusters. Like, to run through the slate, the films that are going to kind of fall under this are The Little Things, Judas and the Black Messiah, Tom and Jerry. I don't know if you saw the Tom and Jerry trailer, Andrew. Uh, I recently tweeted out a Tom and Jerry gif. So I think I need to, to dig into that a little later. You should. Um, not necessarily for good reasons, but you should. Uh, Godzilla vs. Kong, Mortal Kombat, Those Who Wish Me Dead, The Conjuring, The Devil Made Me Do It, In the Heights, Space Jam A New Legacy, The Suicide Squad, Reminiscence, Malignant, Dune, The Many Saints of Newark, King Richard, Cry Macho, Matrix 4. Like, okay, you've got Matrix 4, you've got Dune, Godzilla vs. Kong, I think they're the really big movies. You've got In the Heights with a lot of potential. I mean, an adaptation of Lin-Manuel Miranda musical, that seems like a lot of people will go for that. We'll find out just how popular Space Jam really is, I guess. <laughs> or we won't now, because it will just go to HBO Max. The Many Saints of New York, how many people would have been, you know, turning out for the Sopranos prequel movie in theaters? King Richard, the Richard Williams, father of Venus, Serena Williams, starring Will Smith. You know, like, all of this stuff. I don't know. I I don't know if necessarily the most important film in next year is in this batch anyway. It probably very likely is not. But it's it's a bold move, all the same. And if a studio as big as Warner do it, who knows who could follow. And that's already adding to the Netflix, the Amazon the Hulu, the Disney Plus, the Apple, like all of these places that are already going pretty close to just straight to VOD bar some token screenings in major cities to qualify them for awards runs. You never know, Adam. We could get the next Avengers movie made for $10 million directed by Kelly Riker. So that that could be the end result of this. (laughs) Uh, I'd rather she just keeps making her stuff. But yeah, who knows? Will we talk about Brandon Cronenberg, a filmmaker who is very much on the opposite end of the scale to some of these movies? Yeah, I think his movies are still going to get theatrical releases in the right settings, Adam. I really do. Yeah, and they will play very well at home, too. Like, this is an interesting conversation. I said it when I just suggested this last week. We hadn't talked about it. And I just knew Possessor was coming out here, coming out on VOD, such as our new reality. And I wanted to see it. And I hadn't seen Antiviral. And I'd kind of intended to see that for a long time, just had never got to it. And it felt like a perfect time. I said, why not bring Andrew along for the journey? Why not bring everyone else? I'm sorry if I brought any of you along for that journey. And you've been uh, upset, disturbed, distressed by it. I did mention that as far as I knew, his films could be pretty disgusting. And that was certainly something that came into play here. Um, that's putting it lightly. I had never seen Antiviral either. I had not even heard of Possessor because 
I, I'm a fake movie bro as we as we get into things. And I've True. he's the son of director David Cronenberg, and I had only seen two of his films, the the Vigo the Vigo movies only. Apparently, uh, I, I'm the only David Cronenberg movies I've seen are atypical and starring Vigo Mortensen. So go figure. Um, and uh, chalk up another weird one for Andrew, but. I had no idea really what to expect going into this. And I think that's a really good way to view these films from an experience standpoint, even if that experience isn't always pleasant. He's he's so two two feature films that there weren't the best movies I've seen this year or in the last few years, but they're incredibly interesting and the themes that he's working with, I, I think he has a lot to say doesn't always land the plane or do it in the most articulate way but visually he leaves you with this visceral reaction based on the images that he's showing you and he does not shy away from from really punching you in the face with blood guts gore whatever it may be and i kind of find that impressive like I respect a director with the gall to really just make their movie and not worry about the reaction. Um, it was a really interesting experience. And Adam, I know we literally went into this sight unseen. I think we're we're both a little scarred from the experience, but I think we're better for it. And I mean, uh, where do we go from here? It, which starting with with antiviral, I think is something that's so interesting to watch for the first time in 2020 because it started out as one thing in 2012. And I don't know. I, I wonder what the reaction would have been like had I seen it when it was released and then seen it again in 2020. It's just a very strange and gross kind of story that he's telling there. Yeah, very much. I mean, that movie has evolved. It's taken on some new levels not even so much with the story itself just as much as how we process all of that now and how our own brains have been reprogrammed which is kind of fitting enough for his second movie um but he does his movies are they're sci-fi horror and they dabble in science fiction that has just enough grounded in you know not reality, but possibly not too distant future. This applies less so for antiviral, unless things take a very weird turn. But who knows? I mean, who knows what people are into, Andrew? Certainly not I. This is a very basic comparison, but like from that grounded reality standpoint, it's like a notch closer to realism than Black Mirror, most Black Mirror episodes. Yes, we'll yeah, say. there's there's absolutely, there's an element of Black Mirror a play in his films um, just to be considerably more body horror. And that is the brand of horror that's at work here. It's not like you're getting jump scares or you're getting persistent scares throughout. But when it comes time to turn things up, Brandon Cronenberg, much like his father, can make things truly incredibly disgusting. And it is interesting that the two David Cronenberg films you've seen are the two Viggo Mortensen movies. Um, I've actually seen neither, which I should rectify. I believe they're both very good. I also believe that they are 
it's not necessarily their atypical. They're more typical of his later career work, where David Cronenberg really made his name for his truly kind of shocking body horror early in his career. So the likes of Videodrome, of Scanners, I guess even not just early in his career, like Crash, to be clear, not the Paul Haggis weird Oscar winner Crash. Um, Crash, Cronenberg's Crash, very different film. One of the darkest, most depraved films ever made. Like, very simply, I don't think I'm exaggerating that. I'm sure a lot of people who have seen Cronenberg's Crash will back that up. So, uh, are we going to do a Crash Cruising double episode at any point? I mean, I mean, Crash makes Cruising seem like very light and breezy. <laughs> oh, oh, oh boy. That's, that's, that's really the crashes. A Videodrome is another. I mean, I saw Videodrome very young, and Videodrome, just its imagery, I found really kind of scarring. It's the best way I could put it. And it's not to... It's not to, and even this applies to Brandon Cronenberg films, it's not to say, like, they're incredibly scary, that you're going to be shocked. It's just, it's understanding the power of the image and in the type of filmmaking that both father and son seem to employ, at least so far in Brandon's career. They know when and how to amp that up. And certainly with Possessor, there's two shots that are, like, seared into my brain and I wish they'd go away. And when I watched it, I was like, this was a big mistake telling everyone to watch these because there will be some people who are very distressed. But this is a very popular kind of filmmaking. Like, this is the kind of movie making that has real shelf life, real longevity, that you can build up cult following, that it can have success. Now, that will generally be success relative to budget, on a kind of theatrical release in a normal world, um, one we don't live in. Possessor, I could see being that movie if if we were in a normal time. Like it could be a a movie that certainly lures a lot of people in, and then gets an all time terrible cinema score because a lot of the people would go expecting one thing, getting another. But at the same time, I mean, there's something certainly at work that's much more intellectual. Although I wouldn't necessarily say it can always be landed successfully on an intellectual level. And then there's just sheer like blood, gore and guts. And it's kind of a winning formula. Like like you said, these are not the two greatest movies by any means. And that was part of what made me want to do this episode was to just have a bit of variance in this. Because particularly with the way this year has gone and the lack of like frequent new releases we have settled into a very nice, very enjoyable pattern where we get to talk about a lot of things we really, really love. We get to talk about like things that are classics that I feel like most weeks we come on and we're like, this thing is great. I love this thing. You love this thing. Isn't it great that we all love this thing? These are certainly films that are much more divisive than that. I think we both came out on pretty much the same page on them. I think listeners, if you did check them out or if you do after the fact, may have different thoughts. But they're very much worth seeing. I was watching a, an interview that Cronenberg, Brandon, this is, um, gave at Sundance ahead of, I guess, the first screenings of Possessor right back at the beginning of the year. And he was asked to kind of 
I don't know, a kind of rough, vacuous, pretty empty question about the violence in his movie. And I thought he gave a really interesting answer, which was that, like, if he's going to have violence in his movies, he's going to make it as horrifying as possible. Like, he's going to make it truly and utterly disgusting, because guess what? Violence is horrifying. And his point was, you could go and see a PG-13 movie where hundreds of people are killed and there's no blood, and, like, is that sanitized version of violence better? Like, what message does that really send to wider society? Um, We could get into that conversation and go very far on it. But I thought, you know what, that is a, it's certainly a worthwhile point, is that if you're going to employ gore, you're going to employ blood, you're going to employ violence in your movies, make it bloody violent. (laughs) Make it so the people are like, that doesn't look like fun. That's kind of disgusting. Because that's the reality of it, you know? It's not like you shoot someone in the head and there's no cleanup involved. Uh, but we put it that way. Yeah, and and I think... So he does that with the violence to to really highlight just like how you said, how grotesque that is. If someone... You're, you're walking down the street and someone gets shot, that's going to be a horrifying and traumatic experience. It's not going to be like... Uh, James Bond 007 Goldeneye the video game where you're just shooting people with a silenced uh, pistol and it's it's all fun and games it's not that and I think he does that through other ways exploring themes as well where he's kind of turning the (laughs) the mirror back on the audience and the world at large where it's like these things that we're obsessed with and that we've come to normalize are really weird when you when I show you this at an extreme level Especially, I think, in antiviral is, is where that comes across. I mean, he's taking something like celebrity culture and an obsession we have with celebrities and, and really just pointing out how absurd it is when you really think about it. I mean, we, we all just want to take a piece of famous people and find some connection. We want a selfie. We want to retweet. We want signed memorabilia. And it's kind of weird. <laughs> like, when you really boil it down. Now, I'm someone that has a signed Stephen Gerrard poster that i was gifted recently that i love i i collect records i love sign records it's like well when you really think about it my obsession with the people i've never met uh that play games and sing songs for 11 a living is very weird and bizarre and the way he takes it to another level it is and it's not right i mean there is a very i would say pronounced line between uh getting some steve gerrard memorabilia because you enjoy watching Liverpool FC play. You looked up to Steven Gerrard, the player, who maybe looked down when he slipped. Oh, come on. Continue. But that isn't the same as being like, I want Steven Gerrard's virus in me. <laughs> I don't think that's a stretch. Now, this is kind of... It's about where the film works and where it doesn't work, because you've got a, it's a It's a movie... You've got to amplify it. You've got to make it cinematic and you've got to like turn it up to 11 and maybe Bradley Cronenberg goes to 12 at times um, because that's not even the weirder or more disgusting parts of the movie. That's just kind of the starting point. That's like, okay, that's weird. Um, I guess that's the central idea of the movie. And then it just gets weirder. And you're like, okay, it certainly wouldn't have, wouldn't have put my head in that particular space. Uh, but it is it is toying with an idea of that. I mean, the part that's interesting 
is like we live in the virus world now andrew <laughs> like this this is our life where we all think about the virus and we look at strangers as in do they have it are they going to give it to us generally we don't look at strangers because we try to stay away we try to keep our distance we try to stay isolated and that is really weird and it adds a, a new level of kind of mistrust and suspicion and unease and added to just the nature of what viruses are and how they transmit that's interesting and for Brandon Cronenberg the idea of this was he got sick and he started to think about you know someone made me sick someone gave me their virus someone gave me their illness and he viewed it as there was an intimacy in that and he played with that from there as in what kind of person or under what circumstances would someone someone want to go that route i saw i believe this was on the wikipedia page and i didn't do further research although i would believe it so maybe i'm wrong maybe everyone should check this to be sure but seemingly what you know made him convinced this was the route to go in antiviral was he was watching Jimmy Kimmel Live and Sarah Michelle Michelle Geller was on the show and she said she was sick and if she sneezed, she'd affect everyone in the audience. And the audience all started cheering. <laughs> and this was the moment where he's like, Yeah, okay, this is the movie. This is this is the movie. And I kind of get yeah, that is a thing. But he takes it to the extremes as he needs to, and I think really pokes at an idea not just of celebrity, but of intimacy and of, you know, kind of how we're all just, uh, how we're all just rubbing shoulders with each other, sometimes more than shoulders in this world and everything that comes from that and every just, it's all very weird, Andrew, really. You know, the things that are normal are now weird. This is 2020. But I think this is the, these are some of the extra layers to me it's just the central ideas that he was playing at. They've evolved in different ways now. I mean, this movie could be made in a way that's much simpler, takes what I guess is his main conceit out of it and plays in something more modest and becomes like just a kind of a good COVID movie. Not that we're ready or really want to see any of those. But I, I do think there's so many elements of that outside of like mentions of a virus from China, a virus that started in China, which you and I have already discussed like that jumps out and it's like oh my god this is weird there's just i guess the way our brains process viruses now the way we're kind of hardwired and tuned into this is very different than if we had seen this eight years ago yeah i mean even even in movies that aren't anti-viral 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 whatever um and i see people in a crowded restaurant or walking down a busy new york city street i just kind of cringe a little bit and freak out it's just a, a normal reaction for me to have now which is insane uh what this movie made me feel adam you know like i said we look up to celebrities we want to feel a connection to them and we sometimes almost view them as above us i think one of the the lines that caleb Landry jones character sid says as he's trying to uh, make a sales pitch when someone's coming into the store for a new virus like you do on a Wednesday afternoon after you get off your shift. You know you know how you do that, Adam. Um, says she's like almost beyond human or better than human or some kind of thing like that. But what you really realize when you watch this movie is that every single human being on the earth 
are just bags of bones, meat, and grossness. Yeah. And all of us. The most we're, we're just the meat for something else that doesn't exist, you know? The dinosaurs will say. Like the the best looking actor in the world, the Brad Pitts of the world, any number of attractive celebrities out there, they're all horrifyingly disgusting because they have human bodies <laughs> with the with the ability to get sick and decay. We're just always constantly decaying and then things infect us and it makes it worse. And just the framing of the human body in this movie, it's just, it sticks with you forever. And uh, that's, that's, that's probably a, I probably have a phobia now of just every other human being that, you know, started with COVID and now antiviral is just taking it to a whole new level. Oh, you have six pack abs. No, you're gross. Like, it doesn't matter. Sorry. Sorry, Brad Pitt. Sorry, Cindy Crawford. We're all disgusting. Yeah, I get get that. I get that vibe from the film. I get where you're going to that place from. There's also just this sense of, I mean, how unnatural humans seem to be, you know, for what is actually natural. If you're to compare what we are to, say, flowers, Andrew, or trees, or, you know, things we think of as natural things we think of as nature like there's there's something there is something inherently disgusting and i guess that in large part comes from our brains and the fact that we are top of the food chain and the fact that we do really manipulate and spin the rest of that world for our own means um, makes us disgusting it leads to perversion it leads to that sense of i guess something truly exploitative and to give some sort of outline like we're not gonna we're not gonna overdo outlines of plots here we're not gonna really veer into spoiler territory if there's some mild spoiler stuff we want to talk about we'll i'll put up a warning but like antiviral is it's a film um centered around Kale Blandry Jones character Sid he works for a company called Lucas Clinic and what they do is they buy viruses from celebrities who fall ill and they allow weirdos freaks and really just kind of you know maybe everyday people which is the point we're all weirdos and freaks to come in pay to get infected with that person's virus with that celebrity of their choosing's virus so that they can share something, you know? They could share something with that person. Pretty dark, disturbing stuff. It then leads to a more dark and disturbing place where there's a black market, where um, viruses are being spun off and sold in different ways. I feel like you should you should be the one to break down some of where this goes. Yeah, ham. Um, I think, <laughs> I think I, I'll... So, it's essentially a butcher shop. Where, say, for example, Sid from the clinic smuggles in the latest strain of a celebrity's disease or, or DNA. I'm not sure exactly how that worked, considering the what's going on next. He'll sell it to the man at the butcher shop, and he essentially grows... It's, yeah, it's, it's artificially. They use the cells to artificially grow. I think what it was described as is, like, muscle-like material. Yes. So 
in this scenario, I'm eating Steven Gerrard's steak for dinner <laughs> because I went to this butcher and they've got it's Celebrity like meat markets right on Main Street is yes. like what that's actually the most disturbing part of this is that this isn't some shady place where, you know, all the cannibal folks go. In fact, this isn't even thought of as cannibalism, it seems. I'd still call it cannibalism. Um, I'm a vegetarian, though, so maybe I have different standards. I recently got a smoker, and I've been smoking a lot of pork. <laughs> I don't think I would any smoke... favorite musicians or anything you foresee ending up in the smoker? I, ne- I really need to highlight the visual nature of what you see in this scene, too. Because as much as it's a butcher shop, it almost reminds me of the sensation of going into my favorite bakery back when you could go to places. And they've got all the little pastries laid wow. out by what I'm what concerned. I'm concerned by this. That sounds like you were finding this too appealing. Oh, no. It's Do you not have butcher shops that are like that, though? Do you not have... Butcher shops um, will have everything laid out, all the little sections, the nice, neat little signs for what everything is. I mean, maybe this is a particularly kind of upmarket hipster. Uh, let's say it's like, I don't know, Williamsburg. Williamsburg's a hipster New York neighborhood, right? Yes, it's in Brooklyn. Sorry to anyone in Williamsburg listening, if I've offended you, um, in saying that you're the kind of place there would be a celebrity meat market. But bakery is bakery is drawing a different connotation that i don't didn't quite feel okay it's an unpleasant bakery everything's laid out just so oh here's your uh taylor swift steak here or here's your uh timothy chalamet ham here and it's just also normal to them and completely horrifying to me and it's incredibly effective and i've been re- making references for the last 24 hours to Adam about you know what celebrity meat I'm going to cook up this weekend. It's just it's I mean you have to see it. And one of my favorite parts about what he's done here as well is the steaks do not look appealing whatsoever. No, they don't. N- not when they're sitting in the window, not when you've microwaved it or put it in a pan or whatever he does and you're eating it. It's that's, just that's interesting the same though. I'm and again, I mean if I saw a regular steak, I'm not going to be like, "Oh, I want to eat that." So I come at this from a different place, but I'm curious as to you saying that. If this looked like a regular steak and you were told it was whatever celebrities, would you be like, well, it looks good? <laughs> um, I guess in this world now, if I would, I, if, you know, I, I like I said, I love a, a nice rack of ribs. If they were like, Hey, here's, um, here's Leo DiCaprio's left rib cage. Bon appetit. Uh, I, I don't I don't think I'd leave the counter with that. It's it's also horrifying. This man's brain is not right. I respect <laughs> the hell out of it. Yeah, he, look, these two movies, what I will give them is they're original, and that's nice, and that's interesting. Um, like, I, I think in terms of if we're talking about antiviral and what we think of the movie overall, I said to you, I think it, it takes a pretty hard lull in the middle. Um, once the... Once the strangeness of the premise and all of the kind of stuff we've set up, just the novelty of that wears off, it takes a lull as it runs through some plot mechanics. And then it gets back and it finishes pretty big and pretty disgustingly once again. There are, I mean, and you touched on, I wasn't necessarily 
kind of plugged right into it right away but just you talking about just the idea of how disgusting humans are and then that we are just bags of meat and bones kind of much like a lot of other stuff like he's definitely playing with that idea i don't i i don't know where like the idea of human well it's not quite human meat see this yeah whatever it is in these butcher shops in these meat markets that's that's doing something very intentional and to me i found those images very effective and affective i think would be the way to put it but it's an interesting watch kind of at all times even when it's lulling and it's losing momentum and you're like the plot doesn't have me you're not gonna switch it off or completely turn away because you're like well there's there's just something off something very off about so much of this that it could bring me back it could shock me and it could hook me in at any moment and i think that's interesting it's just kind of pretty bold and original ideas for filmmaking i I wasn't crazy about the look of uh, antivar i think possessor looks great i i really think there's kind of a leveling up in possessor in a lot of ways visually um I think maybe part of what what's tough about antiviral is it's very white. Like all the interiors, all of the backgrounds are very um like they're I guess they're like hospitalized, right? They're like this kind of ultra sterile, um, you know, the kind of environment you'd hope your celebrity meat is being prepared in. Is that the way to put it? Yeah, and, and just very harsh lighting. Harsh lighting, very white, and then Caleb Landry Jones as the lead character is very unwell. He is very ill because he is illegally smuggling viruses in his body. And kids, don't try that at home, uh, particularly right now. Don't try that at home. But I don't think anyone has ever looked more like a vampire than Caleb Landry Jones in this movie, which is somewhat fitting considering some of the things involved in the film. Yeah, I was trying to recall other films that I've seen him in other than Get Out. Um, You've seen him in um, The Florida Project? Yes. and He's with the folks, huh? And, and Three Billboards. Um, mm, less memorable. Yes, much less memorable. Uh, I think he gives a perfect, or not perfect, but I think he gives a great performance. And to your point, his whole aesthetic is perfect for what we're being asked to go through as an audience. Like, I mean, no offense to him personally, uh, but he, in a lot of pictures that I would see him in, in on the internet, he looks like he's fighting off a virus. He's a sickly looking guy. He's pale. He's pale. He's a pale guy naturally, and that's certainly, you know, accentuated in this film. Yeah, I mean, does he does he front any indie rock bands? Because he looked like he d- could do that too. Like some of the folk Americana bands I listen to, he looks like he could be a frontman of that. He, uh, he I, released an album this year, I think. Oh, perfect! I probably love his music. Uh, he <laughs> he looks like someone whose music he'd love. To be fair, yeah he he gives a really good performance and a really impactful performance because just going on the journey with him, where he has to look like he's literally on death's door for 108 minutes. It, it really relies on a performance from him to carry the entire movie. And like you said, even when it's lulling, uh, 
it's still watchable just because you're waiting for some sort of resolution and he's kind of pulling you through it as well. I mean, I, I think uh, it was a really good performance that I, I was, I don't know if I was surprised, just not an actor that I'm familiar with being blown away by performances. Like I thought his role in get out, uh, I thought his character was maybe a, a little more cartoonish. Then I think he's really good in get out. I think uh, he's a great actor. Like I, one of the things that I, I started to think about him in again while watching this because again it's a movie where he is not well and he very much doesn't look well and it involves a lot of needles is the Safety Brothers Heaven Knows What, which is a deeply, deeply upsetting film for very different reasons. Um, much more ground than realism, but deeply, deeply upsetting and certainly not for the faint of heart, although something that people should watch. He you know, I don't know what it is with him being in movies with needles, <laughs> um, but he's he's certainly got that going for him. If you are someone who isn't crazy about needles, maybe this is not the film for you. That's something that entered my head. I used to be a little bit like that. I've conquered it. I'm a very good friend of mine who I generally go to see movies with, and I get great entertainment at movies when... He's on the verge of passing out because on a giant screen in front of him, there's a massive needle and something happening. Like, I was thinking quite a bit about him during this, and like, yeah, this would be, I would get a lot of mileage out of this, but he would probably faint because there's a lot of needles. Like, aside from just the actual gory stuff that comes later, um, just the general, maybe this is partly informed for me by. I hadn't seen the films, but I did know what I was getting into. I knew a little bit about Brandon Cronenberg's reputation, and I certainly knew about, let's say, the films he grew up around, like his father's films. And there's a sense of there's a sense of dread that comes with you know with every shot of something that could unlock the next disgusting thing. It's not like you're on edge. It's not like you're waiting for a jump scare. But certainly from the position I was in, I was watching and I was like, this thing that's happening on screen right now, not necessarily a big deal, but it could become something truly disgusting like in just a second. It it has that capability. And I feel like the director wants me to feel like the movie is on the verge of swinging into something like that just at any point. And I think from that perspective, it works. Yeah, at- as a director, your job is to, as we've said before, like the De Palma thing, manipulate the way your audience is feeling by what you're showing them. And while he uses a sledgehammer rather than a scalpel, mm-hmm. it's it's very effective. And I, I mean, I've thought about this movie a lot over the last 24 hours since I saw it, just because of how it made me feel. I don't think I'll ever watch this movie again, but I'm glad I saw it. Um on on another point, Adam, if you're someone that loves needles, like loves needles, like you well, think if <laughs> if needles are your Steven Gerrard, well, uh, okay, see this movie now. Sure, buy, yeah, buy the Blu-ray. I don't know. I'm sure there's a name for those kind of people. We won't. We'll turn very quickly out of this. I don't like the the dead end you backed me into here, Andrew. Possessor. I mean, actually, well, just before we get to Possessor, something I get the impression of from you is that antiviral kind of, it upset you more than Possessor. Am uh, I right in saying that? 
Easily. Easily more than Possessor. I and with it's it's insane to say it as we'll get into the next conversation because of Possessor has a similar kind of uncomfortableness that is forced upon you throughout the movie, but it's in a different way. I think a lot of what I felt from antiviral and took away from it had to do with the times we're in and just, I guess the realness of it all. Possessor to me feels like something that's in a alternate universe. That's not a reality that I'm going to be faced with. Well, Possessor is much, much closer to reality. I hate to break it to you. I mean, well, there's one aspect of it that is to me that's closer to reality, and then another aspect that's uh, di- didn't really feel real for me. Like the I, core, I the core science of Possessor is not entirely fake. Now, the use of it—that's a stretch, sure. Um, never underestimate just how people will take technologies and use them, though. But the actual, some of the technological he didn't make it being like i want to make a movie about this thing that's you know not too distant potentially possible there is a kind of from what i've read from what i've listened to from what i've heard there is a basis of neuroscience and kind of elements of you know basically controlling someone's movements controlling their actions true you know how you're interacting with their brain that is very much not based in alternate reality it's based in this reality and there like have been some successful experiments that have delved into some of this although it's not necessarily the kind of science that is probably getting a whole lot of funding for good reason okay well now i'm fucking terrified by both (laughs) (laughs) i'm sorry about that andrew but um yeah that's that's from anything i know of that is the case okay possessor Interface is active and we're at full power. What's your levels this time? You just make sure you pull the trigger on the way out. After initial binding, you'll be locked in, with no loss of control permitted during this performance. We can't afford any mistakes on this one. Ready? I guess what is a possessor is really where to start and that gives the introduction to the film possessors are assassins in this movie the movie is it's like when you talk about an alternate reality it is set up to be an alternate reality that is 100% it's just a little bit off it's very much you know it largely resembles the world we live in but there's enough there that's just different enough to say okay we're in science fiction and that's necessary that's intentional um that's kind of you know irrespective of the science and where the science is actually kind of plausible and real and where it's completely outlandish that that definitely sounds true for the movie so possessors are contract killers who 
And if I if you feel I'm not putting this in the best way possible, if I'm getting any of this wrong, you just chime in. Well, I thought that this was all bullshit. So clearly, I don't have a good handle on anything, Adam. Someone's well, gonna come to my house and kill handle. me. You might have a better <laughs> handle on the plot details. I'm so, looking at all my fr- I'm looking at all my friends and family weird now. I don't know who's who. Continue. <laughs> They're looking at you weird too. Don't worry. Possessors are contract killers who assume control of other people, uh, essentially take control of their bodies and do their killing using that other person's body. I think is a very kind of basic way of putting it. And um, this is done by inserting a probe into the person's brain. And yeah, there's a lot there that I'm sure is very, you know, it's very far removed from what's real. Or certainly there's a big gap in terms of and um, where we are to believing that. But that's the core idea of this film. I mean, our main protagonist is probably Andre Riseborough's character. Although we don't necessarily spend the most time on screen with her because she's a possessor. So that's kind of the setup here. And I guess some of the ideas it's playing around in are the idea of kind of personal autonomy and, you know, what we do and who we are and what if that could be manipulated. And if it comes from us, then is it still us? Could someone make you feel different about someone? Could make someone else make you do something differently to someone and um, for all we think we're in control are we really kind of just clinging on uh, by the fingernails for dear life and it's a really interesting premise i think a really really interesting premise and for me i don't think the premise necessarily sets up the extremes of weirdness that antiviral does i'm not saying this movie is not weird not saying that at all but i I don't think it's going to something like the celebrity meat market that's jarring right that's really kind of even in a movie it's like okay this is this is tough to stomach no pun intended i don't think possessor is doing that but it's its idea um comes attached with its own deeply upsetting potential and i I think cronenberg actually explores it much more successfully to much greater lengths in this film i think he he gets much closer to you know maximizing what this movie could be and i also think just it's so much more interesting visually the use of color the way the camera moves i would guess i actually haven't looked but i'm assuming with being a second feature too slightly slightly greater budget and it certainly looks to that. It has a, a higher budget sheen to it. The performers, you know, Antivirus had, had a really good cast too. So maybe that's not fair. But I do think there's two really great actors kind of anchoring this film in Andrea Riseborough and Christopher Abbott, along with familiar faces who show up in kind of notable enough roles. Jennifer Jason Lee's there for quite a lot of it. Sean Bean appears at some point. He, did, he, does, he, did, he, he does appear. He does, he's there. Um, but yeah, okay, so that's kind of a rough setup of what's happening here. Without getting into, again, we're not getting into too many details of it here, but I guess the idea is rather than just, oh, you could have someone killed, it's, oh, well, you could have someone killed, but you could also, you know, 
you could construct it yourself. You could decide who's going to kill them. You could set up a motive where it's essentially, you know, it's tied with a neat bow. There's no one to track. That's kind of the core idea, I guess, behind the film, except nothing is that simple when it involves human impulses. I'm going to project my own uh, reading onto this film, Adam. Um, and I don't think I Brandon, Cronen- Brandon Cronenberg intended this, but this really reminds me of the movie Good Kill with Ethan Hawke, where he's a drone pilot. These are human drones. You are somewhere far away and safe to an extent, or so we thought when you know they, they started all this, and you get to have something else, or in this case, someone else, do your dirty work, and you get your money, you accomplish your goal, and you go you go home. Like in Good Kill, I think one of the things I found interesting with uh, the main character, Tosh, Tasha, Tosh, they call her sometimes, um, pronunciation, you, you, got, you guys know how it goes from now on, is uh, it's uh, largely about someone who's really getting lost in their work to a detrimental degree. Maybe that's what I pull out of it from a different reason, but she... She finds it tough to separate from both the people that she's possessing and just the nature of her job in general. It's just all-encompassing, and she's losing her sense of self and is un- unable to, to cope when she's back in the real world, which I, I found really resonant. And so it, it's weird that a movie that isn't necessarily about these types of things, I mean, losing a sense of oneself because of either another person or a job and also uh, drones targeting um, countries. So basically, Adam, this for me is a harsh rebuke of the Barack Obama administration. Um, I, I'm not sure I agree with the that part of it. I think the other part of it, you're not, you're not kind of uh, imposing that particular reading on the film. I think that's, that's the idea of the film is, you know, at what point do we lose our identity to something else that we willfully put ourselves into? At what point does it just take over us? Does it change us irreparably for good? I think there's lots of things you could fit into that metaphor. Um, and there's lots of things that I guess could be the target for it in Brandon Cronenberg's case that he's working from. Work certainly could be one. Um, technology could be another. But I, I don't think you're off the mark at all with that. I don't think that's just your reading. I think that's the movie. I think that's a very apt way of, of kind of framing it. And also, like, given from where it starts to where it ends and some of the subtle kind of decisions that are made, really just in the what's essentially the framing devices of the film, um, beginning and end, kind of tie very neatly into that particular idea and exploring that kind of theme. So, yeah, it's about... I guess just how fragile our sense of identity it is and just how the things that people do. Again, humans, I don't think Brandon Cronenberg has the highest opinion of humans. No. And... I've heard interviews with him and he seems like a very nice guy. Very normal, very nice guy. I'd love to have him on the podcast. Um... I'm not sure he'd be up for that, but that would be great if... if if anyone is listening who can get Brandon Cronenberg on Captured and Celluloid, <laughs> get in touch. Uh, yeah, and the uh, the nastiness of humans and what we choose to 
I guess, cling on to or use to make up our identity also extends to not necessarily just the people that are carrying out, out these acts and that literally um, inhabit other people. But I, cause I think the same thing applies to the people that hire them. I, I mean, the, the scenario that, that we get set up is when you think about it, kind of a trivial reason to kill three people in your life. But I guess this person That's is just kind so... of the reason why these things happen, though, in real life. Well, you just blew my mind there, Adam. But that's a very good point. Uh, I mean, this person I'm not is talking so talking about so... assassins necessarily, but you know, kind of. I don't want to say you're run of the bill murders. That seems to uh, kind of undersell just the the magnitude and the horror of murder. But you do get what I mean. It's kind of the petty motivations that lead to this in the first place. Again, that's kind of the essence of humans and how they think and how they act more importantly. Yeah. I mean, if I was living in a world where my every action was filmed, um, I might go a little crazy too, especially if I wanted to be the architect of that. Do you want, do you want me to do it again? Do you want me to, you, you are living in a world where your I, every I, action is filmed. I, I cover, I, I have a, I cover my uh, my webcam. They're, they're still they're on to you. Don't worry, Andrew. Oh God, I'm gonna be found out. Um, explain to me what exactly this company does. First of all, I, not to get off target, but I'm a little confused about that because there's a which the whole, which companies? Uh, there's there's two companies. So there's the company that Andrew Riseborough's character Tasha works for. Yeah, I, that, that I'm company. Good, I'm, I'm good there. I know, I know what they do. So the company um, that Christopher Abbott's character, who Tasha eventually possesses, that's not right. a spoiler. It happens very, very early in the film. Because another element to this film and some of the themes is just like the role technology plays in our lives and how yeah. it's sort of overtaking us. But I wasn't quite clear on what he did for a living. He, he to me, seems to be doing something as mundane as working for a company that um they were using kind of webcams people's webcams to look at what kind of curtains they had so i'm guessing he was doing some sort of market research related for curtains so someone could sell curtains better so it's like when i do research on a fantasy betting app for my job it's it's like that but um much more intrusive um much more intrusive would be an understatement it's it's basically yeah it's people peering into people's homes I guess, like, I mean, there's, you don't have to go, go too far to work out a version of this, which is the, you know, oh, you've got, like, an Amazon Echo in your house, or you've got an iPhone and you use Siri. You know, that sense of it, where, oh my god, look what I'm now, I was having a conversation the other day, and now look at the targeted ad I'm getting on Facebook. You know, that kind of, to me, it just seems like a natural extension of that, which was, we're going to embody this, we're going to have someone actively doing this on screen doing the work for that so i do think it was playing around with that idea somewhat yeah having christopher abbott do the viewing rather than some sort of artificial intelligence or machine learning transcription was much more effective so okay now now i'm clear on that uh do i need new curtains is the other question i had but yeah it's technology much like our previous conversation when we realize that Human beings are terrible and disgusting. I think we also realize that technology is horrible and disgusting. It's 
intrusive into our lives and it's tearing us apart limb from limb. And Brandon Cronenberg wants me to know that, and I do know that now. Speaking of terrible and disgusting, I'm not going to get into the context of this or the spoilers. Um, I mentioned earlier, there's two images in a very short period of time, two shots in this film that just turn my stomach or seared in the back of my eyeballs. And they involve an eye and they involve teeth. You know what I'm talking about. You've seen the movie. People who've watched it or people who maybe haven't watched it but will go to watch it. When you see it, you will know. Like, that is a lot. That is extreme. But that's what you should be doing if you're making this movie. And I, I think to me, that was something where there's a clear progression uh, and a clear improvement from antiviral. I'm not necessarily saying I'm disappointed I didn't get more of, you know, the deeply disturbing imagery in antiviral because there were some to begin with. But I do think in a cinematic sense of, oh, I'm going to put the camera right here and we're going to have some fun with the effects and we're going to have some fun with the editing. It's going to be quick paced, but you're going to get these images and they are going to stick with you. I think it's just a much tighter kind of command of of the form and of his role as a director. If you're making movies like this, again, I guess to go to his original point, like if you're making movies showing these kind of acts of violence, not the worst idea to make it truly disgusting. And I really think he succeeds here. Like neither of these movies are, they're not violent or bloody in the way that like a slasher movie is. I think that's kind of important to point out. They're just very efficient. Like when they, when they go for it and the moment is right to hit those marks, they do it in a way that's much more upsetting than what you'll necessarily see in any of those movies. Yeah, I agree. And th- but there there are still points of this film, I think, where to your point earlier about his interview where he, he wants you to truly realize the horrific nature of violence. He he does that successfully by just making it grotesque. I mean, there there's one particular uh, assassination attempt in this movie that is a scene that I can't stop thinking about because I'm thinking about the mechanics of it. Where uh, where in the movie early? Uh, uh, m- middle middle would be the best way to say it. Middle middle middle. I uh, a fire poker. Is oh, involved. Yeah. That's, that's the scene I'm talking about. Oh, okay. That's well, what I'm, yeah. what I'm talking about. Like the two key shots of that scene are, you know. I and teeth, and they are. I I cannot shake that image. <laughs> like it's deeply, deeply upsetting. Adam, what it made me think of, and again, he was effective in making me feel this and make this comparison. I was thinking of you, you go to a cocktail party, and there's a hors d'oeuvre played out, and the idea is you stick toothpicks into the type of food that you want. There's a brief wow. moment where maybe I have the last cocktail weenie or the last hunk of cheese and I stick my toothpick and it, the toothpick is through the weenie <laughs> entirely and is touching the bottom of the tray. So it, there's a little moment there before I pick it up where it's pinning the the cocktail weenie to the tray, except it's all the way through the cocktail weenie. Do you understand what I'm saying? And I, I, get, I get what you're saying. The fact that, yeah, uh it's it's upsetting and effective. Again, I'll say that. I this podcast is 
similar to the first time we discussed primer and upstream color and that I wasn't anticipating how blown my mind would be by the horrifying images that I saw. Th- that was for different reasons. That was for plot mechanic reasons. This time, yeah, very, it's, very different reasons. Yeah, I mean, this time it's a little different. It's interesting that you bring up those two movies and you bring up someone like Shane Cruz. I think Brian Cronenberg is more interested in spectacle. He's interested in something that's more obviously cinematic. And on the one hand, that's a good thing. And on the other, it, I think, somehow leads to his downfall. I think he's right to be approaching his movies that way. And I think he will make something at some point that is so mind-blowingly good, kind of, you know, just a certified masterpiece that people could talk about for decades and decades to come by taking that particular approach. But in watching these two films, I think I was left with the feeling that really smart premises, too smart for where he needs to get to and kind of getting through all your setup and getting your audience on the page of the sci-fi elements of it all to then kind of reach some of your peak moments, I guess, of horror. The journey down is tough from there. And it worked better for me in the case of Possessor, but I do think when you get to kind of the last act of the movie... It's it's really like it's stretching far beyond, for example, anything where I said, oh, you know, there are parts of this that aren't as far from being reality as you might think. Like There's and, some Ray Kylo stuff going on. Yes, yes, exactly. And you're getting caught up in that because you had this great high concept, but it's one thing starting a screenplay or starting making your movie where that's the thing. It's another then getting to an end point. And I, I think a filmmaker like this who's as original as and as ambitious is frequently going to write themselves into corners. And to me, I do feel an element of that in the movies. It doesn't mean they're not enjoyable. It doesn't mean they're not actually both good. I think they're both good. They're not necessarily great in my opinion. Um, That's not like any major knock. He made two good and highly original movies. That's a good way for any filmmaker to start their career. I do think, though, there is something with adding scale, adding, I guess, visceral stakes in a way where they'd be much more notably absent from someone like a Shane Carruth's movies. That gives another challenge that I don't think Brandon Cronenberg has quite managed to just overcome, figure out just yet, but I, I think he probably will at some point in his career. In your opinion, as as my movie guy, is that something that comes down to his eyes being bigger than his stomach, so to speak? Yeah, uh, I, I think and that's a that's possibly just at this point of his career thing. It's like it's also he's David Cronenberg, so like there's a part of that that I guess will never really get kind of worked through publicly. It's the kind of thing that maybe he works through in therapy, um, but. That carries a lot of weight. Like, David Cronenberg is one of the major filmmakers of the last 30, 40 years. And he is known for a very particular style of movies. And clearly, Brandon Cronenberg and what he likes to make is not in any way really divorced from the idea of the films that his father made. And you've got that as your kind of 
as what's there in the background. And then you've got someone who just wants to tell ambitious sci-fi horror stories. And then you make something like Antiviral, which is a very good debut, like very interesting debut, the kind of movie where you may not come out of it and be like, I want to watch that again and again, or that's an incredible movie. But I do think it's safe to say, like, if we hadn't done this in the way we had for this exercise, where we're watching his follow-up film straight after it, you would come out of it and say, oh, I wonder what that guy does next, or what, what that looks like, what his career looks like from there. But also, when you're making that kind of movie, you're setting yourself up that you've got you've to figure something out to go with that. And I think when I think of other filmmakers who've had something somewhat similar, I mean, different filmmakers, but part of it is kind of in touch with that too. Think of Ari Aster and think of the hereditary to Midsommar thing. And then some of the issues that people who loved hereditary had with Midsommar are like, this isn't really horror. Where I would say, yeah, it, it is horror and it's maybe a more true primal horror in some ways. But he has this thing for his whole career now where even for the people who like him, he made Hereditary, then he made Midsommar, and that was a different kind of nightmare, a bigger kind of nightmare in scale. So what does he do next? I think that has to be challenging, and that added to being David Cronenberg's son is a lot. It's undoubtedly a lot. But yeah, I do. I think there's possibly eyes bigger than his belly. There's possibly... You know, this is a filmmaker who's working with very modest budgets and who himself has spoken about the not insignificant gap between his first and second movie. Um, aside from being down to needing to come up with a new idea and work through that again, then being how do I get this funded and how long it takes to get something like this funded. That was going to be my, my follow up question is that I think a large degree of that. Uh, the issues with scale is does come down to a budget. I will say that I, I love the Ari Aster comparison because I would say that both Hereditary and Midsommar are a notch up from these these films. But I will say the progression from antiviral it's, it's, to yeah, it feels very similar to me. And I think he definitely figured some things out in that period. He didn't correct everything, but Possessor is just a much better crafted film than antiviral is and uh if i mean that's not one i would shy away from rewatching. it still has the grotesque nature but i think it's for the most part pretty well plotted and the performances are really good it's just a natural progression of a young filmmaker carving out the early stages of his career maybe my favorite david cronenberg film and one of my favorite films of the 2010s is cosmopolis you haven't seen cosmopolis i'm assuming unless you are misspeaking with your two David Cronenberg films, both being the Vigo ones. No, you you know uh, I'm a big Vigo guy. I'm really looking forward to Brandon's first time working with Vigo. So that will probably happen because most of the people who showed up at his movies, um, like Sarah Sarah Gadon, I think is that how you say her name. She's in Cosmopolis. I think Cosmopolis might have been her screen debut. So her then showing up in antiviral not entirely unrelated jennifer jason lee has worked with david cronenberg quite a lot so these are people who obviously at some point have been in brandon's orbit he's got to know and um then when it turns out yeah he's a good interesting filmmaker in his own right they've wanted to work with him but cosmopolis i actually think this is a movie when we get back on track with our um working through year by year 
the films of the 21st century so far, which we will, we will soon. I'd say probably once we get into the new year, we might start to get back to that some more. Uh, I, I think I'll end up getting you to watch Cosmopolis at some point. But my point with Cosmopolis is that movie was made for $20 million. I don't think Brandon Cronenberg will ever get to make a movie for $20 million. And but just... I, I wonder what he could do with that. And yet I also understand why there aren't going to be a whole army of people queuing up at his door and being like, here, have $20 million to stretch the ideas that come out of your brain to, you know, the absolute maximum. Yeah, I mean, he's a ma- he's managed to horrify me in, in two pretty distinct and different ways with really small budgets. Imagine what he could do with $20 million. I might never sleep again. They might have to permanently take me to a hospital and chain me to a bed. That that's that's what Brandon Cronenberg are you are you his next movie is just his next movie is you you don't know it yet but this is all this is all part of Brandon Cronenberg's third feature film. I've always had the sense that there's some sort of Truman Show thing going right. on with me. Um, so yeah, I. I don't know when he started that project. What is he, 12 years older than me? So maybe he started when I was like, I don't know, in my teens. He had so access I, to equipment, you know, very early. That's true. I'm really excited to see how that turns out, you know. Uh, on the, I, I felt his presence, but n- I haven't known he was there until now. So that's, that's, I really look forward to that. Please, nobody look deep inside my mouth. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I think that's a good note to wrap things up. This was good. I think this was a good exercise. It's nice to do something just a little bit different, something unexpected, um, where I don't think either of us were really prepared for what we got, but I think it worked out well. We had some good conversation. Hopefully everyone enjoyed it. And those who are, um, if not brave enough, at least kind of strong-stomached enough, if that's a way of putting it, um, check out these two movies and hopefully like something that's in there, find them interesting or engaging. I think there. I think there's a lot there to like. So I, I'd, I'm sure that'll be the case. Are you ready for next week, Andrew? I am. This is uh, something we've been building towards, and we've there's... been building towards it. We have. So Friday, the day this episode is going to release, Friday the December fourth. Yes, the fourth of December. David Fincher's Mank comes out on Netflix. Next week, we will be talking about Mank. We will also talk about Citizen Kane. And we'll, we're not going to be the only people on the planet doing this, but we'll work through it with our own particular takes. We have already gone through our kind of wider, zoomed out view of Fincher's career up until this point. Go listen to it in preparation for watching Mank or after watching Mank or in preparation for next week. We may have some thoughts. They'll be quite. Um, fresh and reactionary so we may be higher or lower on it than we ultimately settle but maybe we'll have some thoughts on if it would crack our respective fincher top fives where it might fall we'll work through all of that next week so if you haven't already we have a mega fincher podcast out there a lot for all of you to enjoy go check it out and we will be back next week probably next thursday friday again with mank and citizen Kane. that's a big one i'm excited me too that does it for this episode though so in the meantime, make sure you subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. 
Make sure you don't miss any episodes of Captured on Celluloid in the future. You can also follow us on Twitter at Captured on Cell. We're also on Facebook. Uh, if you're following us on Twitter, you may already have seen ahead of time, Andrew made a promo for this episode. I'm assuming this is now, uh, this is an ongoing thing, right? This is, if people want to see your promos, they just follow our Twitter and they get them every week. Yeah, uh, <laughs> this one featured my dog. I, I, I will commit to creating a, a promo every week. Okay. For better or for worse, I, I can make that happen. I, I probably will shave before the next one, get a little trim. I'm looking a little ragged. I had my dog. I'm wearing a hat with a little bird on it. It's backwards, so you can't see the this bird, is, unfortunately. You're pretending that you having your dog chipper in your arms, wearing a hat, wearing some NC State branded clothing is not just, you know, how you're going to be found 364 out of 365 days a year. Yeah, now that I never have to leave the house, it's, <laughs> this it's is pretty the thing, much right? permanent. Um, but okay, so that is, if people want Andrew's weekly teaser promos, I guess follow us on Twitter. There's a real reason for people to go and make sure they're, they're following us there. And we'll be back next week to talk Mank and Susan Kane. As always, thanks all of you for listening. Thank you, Andrew. Thanks, Adam. Everyone wash your hands. <laughs>